Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Show you what we're doing in the kitchen with these. All right, let's see what we got. If you're not already addicted. Okay. I think this bracket to me is like screaming, let's do one One more more shelf. Okay. Meet Chip and Joanna Gaines, the rising stars of HGTV's Fixer Upper. We take the worst house in the best neighborhood and we turn it into our client's dream home. Are y'all ready to see your Fixer Upper? They've renovated dozens of homes in Waco, Texas. Here's the shiplap room. I think it looks great. It looks really good. She has the vision. Today's demo day. He executes the plan. Hi. And after weeks of construction, Joanna has one day to set the stage for the big reveal. Now it's the finishing touches. It's all the things that truly make this house feel like a home I'm getting to do tonight, so I love this time. Four years ago, Joanna was discovered by a blog, and then HGTV came calling. I would say within a few weeks, they had camera crews down. Expect there to be, you know, five to 10%. Chip was a natural. That's what I do best, cheesy and dorky. I've always kind of been the type to where I felt like cameras were following me around sort of in a pretend way, you know? One. But Joanna was a revelation. Three. Ah! He was actually pretty sure that there'd be a star in this show. And maybe he was a little surprised that it's you. I still, to this day, I'm just like, I don't know if they're watching the same show that I'm watching, <laughs> but there's a clear star here that has been born, and the country seems to think it's my wife, and I'm telling you, it's me. Well, it's both it of you. you. I just love the stuff she does. It looks like stuff you would have in your home. She's just brilliant. Nobody's mentioned Chip yet. Chip is just awesome. He's just awesome. He is funny. I'm offering 50. I'm going to take your $50. Chip, don't do it. 50 bucks. Oh, my God! Perhaps the ultimate fixer-upper is the city of Waco, Texas, the unlikely capital of home renovation. I feel like to some extent, this is California back in the gold rush days or Alaska during its boom. You know, I'm thinking if you can make it here, mm-hmm. you could make it anywhere. Oh, I like that. I oh, like yeah. That. I think uh, Sinatra would probably be turning over in his grave, but I, I, I'd take that. <laughs> I'd take that any day of the week. Well, good morning and happy Easter. So we can do this. Let's see how many remember, right? He is risen. He is risen. Oh, you see, look at that. It's a new generation just getting it, I guess, from you old timers. 
Um, so anyway, we're really glad. I'm Robert Kelly, uh, one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, welcome to uh, Easter services in the beginning of our series called Fixer Upper. How many of you have heard of uh, the HGTV show Fixer Upper? How many of you have heard of it? All right. How many of you would say you're actually fans? Like you're, you're actually, all right, wow, more than there. It's great. So it is uh, the most popular show on the HGTV network, network which has now supplanted CNN as the third most popular network. And so uh, they've got a huge audience, very, very popular. The stars, Chip and Joanna, they love Waco, of course, and, but what they really love to do is they love to take the old and the rundown and the dilapidated. They like to find the worst possible homes that they can, they can find in Waco, and something in them drives them to want to work their magic. That's what this is, by the way. This is the magic in the middle. This is all of the design and the creativity and all of the hard work, and though we watch it in one short little episode, there's all sorts that goes in. The planning and the hard work and the sacrifice and the money and the, uh, the energy. It's just, it's a, and all that magic, all of that sort of stuff that they pour themselves into and out comes this. You know, they end up turning these fixer-uppers into something beautiful. It's very restorative. It's even redemptive. And there's something so moving and powerful about it. So it's a fun show, and of course, they're an awesome couple, and so it makes it a real enjoyable thing to watch. It got us to thinking that, isn't that really what the Bible is all about? You know, God, he takes dilapidated people. He takes rotting social systems, decaying churches, damaged cultures, and he, he works his magic, and he sets about to fix them to fix them up and to remake them in his image of goodness and of holiness and of justice, of love. And that's what Easter's about. Jesus Christ brings resurrection life out of death and decay. The old and the rotten and the decrepit, it becomes something new. He takes beauty out of the ashes. There are two fixer-uppers that we're going to be talking about during this whole series. You and your world. You and your world. Now, the TV show reminded us of a very cool book of the Bible, Nehemiah. Nehemiah. I'm not sure if any of you have studied yet Nehemiah or how many of you have studied it before, but we're going to be studying it during the whole course of this ser series, which will be about six or seven weeks long. So open up, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 1, a little background to the book of Nehemiah might be helpful. See, our story begins with a Jewish man who was living in Susa, a city, important city, in the realm of Persia, the empire of Persia. This is southwest Iran today. This is about 500 years before Christ. And so if you kind of take that little purple road all the way down at the end, that's where Susa is. Now, Susa is about a 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. What is this Jewish man doing way over there? Well, the nation of Israel, because of their hard-heartedness and their rebellion against God, they were exiled from their land. God brought in these foreign powers to destroy the Holy Land and to deport the people and scatter them throughout the Persian Empire. 
So they'd been exiled, because, and all, all that was left in the land was this poor little remnant. I mean, think about this. Their cities had been destroyed, including Jerusalem. The temple itself that, that Solomon had built had been reduced to rubble. The Israelites were very hard-pressed during these years. Now, just a little while before Nehemiah's time, some of the exiles began to return to the Holy Land. And they were able to rebuild the temple. But they failed to rebuild the city in any substantive way. And they certainly failed to rebuild the walls. And that's kind of where our story in Nehemiah picks up. Now, Nehemiah, he knows that humanity is in great trouble and disgrace. He understands this. Look at Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, in the ancient world, to have no walls or gates, it really means that, you, that there's no safety. There's no way to rebuild your culture. You're, you're a sitting duck. But Nehemiah knows it's much worse than this. You see, any educated Jewish man would realize that the fate of Israel, the fate of the Jewish people is, is more than simply their problem. Because according to the ancient prophets, the nation of Israel was going to be used by God to bless the whole world. So they would know, these writers would know, Nehemiah would know, if there's no nation of Israel, there's no way that God would raise up the Jewish Messiah who was promised to be savior to the world, a blessing to all of the nations. See, a problem for the Jewish people is a problem for all the people, for all of humanity. Kathy Keller, she puts it like this. Without a secure wall to defend the people from predators, raiders, and the surrounding nations, there would be no permanent restoration of Israelite culture. Their heritage, their way of life would cease. They would be assimilated into the surrounding cultures. The law and the word of God would be forgotten as the remnant intermarried, and they, would, they all would just go away. There would be no more Israelite nation to bring forth God's promised Messiah. See, humanity is in great trouble and disgrace. And of course, this is really the consistent message found throughout the Bible from Genesis 3 to nearly the very end of the book of the Revelation. So our first renovation. Now, for our first renovation, I need three volunteers. I usually pick people that don't look at me. <laughs> Danny will have, that's great. Thank you for volunteering. Come on up. I appreciate that. I need another. Come on up. I need another one. Excellent. Come on. All right. All the way over to the, to the far corner here. You guys are going to help me, uh, help me kind of uh, explain this next point. So for you, any of you country music fans? I'm Robert. I don't know. Who we, how, how are you doing? Oh, very good. Welcome. And any of you country music fans? Because I need one. I will, you're going to be our country music fan today. So you're going to have a seat. You're, you, are, you are lounge, uh, lounge guy, okay? 
your kind of hangout guy, and we're going we're gonna to set you up. You got your remote, your clicker for your outdoor TV. You want a root beer or a real beer? Real beer. Uh, here you go. Don't, <laughs> don't actually open it. And you're, you're the leisure guy, so you're going to just kind of hang out. Here's your clubs. You know, you, you're just chilling. And you see, now, this, you're sitting here in the midst of your dilapidated life. This is your fixer-upper life, but it's more than that. It's also your fixer-upper world. And here, for you, what you're most interested in, in the midst of all of this, is what you can suck out of it for happiness. In fact, we, we, we'll even, we'll even, you know, you don't want to be able to see, you know, too clearly, right? And so you want to just tell we'll just put these on you because... You know, we want to make sure you can't see the fixer-upper too well so that you can actually enjoy all of the things. You have a theme song, by the way. That's why you need to be, this is your theme song. You know this song? I got my toes in the water, toes in the sand. Not a worry in the world, a cold beer in my hand. Life is good today. Life is good today. All right, you like that, right? So you got to hum that for Well, the plane touched down just about 3 o'clock. All right, you keep that humming up. All right. Now, what we got for you, you are going to come on over here. We're going to take you. You you are a focused family guy. Now, focused family guy is neat because what he can do is even though he knows he's living in his fixer-upper of a life and in his fixer-upper of a world, he's decided that that's okay because I know what I need to do. I need to be focused on me and mine. And so you are the guy who takes the family away to the great vacations. Um, you know, you got to get them involved in, you know, every type of sports activity and give them every advantage and take the music lessons, you know, that they need to do. And, and of course, you got to be really interested in school and college, you know, and all of that. Don't drop anything just because this is how it often feels to be the focused family guy, right? Now, you also, you also have a theme song. And your theme song, you're going to have to get a little groove. Yeah. We are That's right. All right. Now, you got to hum that one. All right. You hum that song. You're not humming your song anymore. We need you to hum. All right. Now, what we've got for you, you're actually the one who's going to be able to say, listen, I know I'm living in a fixer-upper of a life and in a fixer-upper of a world. And so you are our, our busy builder, all right? And so we're going to give you a nice little busy builder hat, all right? We got a little tool belt for you. You can, last guy was a lot bigger. Um, so good luck with that. And you, we, what we got for you is we got a pile of things that you you're got. Your job here is to, is to make our fixer-upper world just a little bit better. And so we've got all sorts of little things that you can use to decorate. And you'll see there's some hooks in some other places. And so you're going to get busy making this, this actually look, you know, better. And so, you know, that's, that's your job. You also have a theme song. All right, so you ready? Okay. Here's your theme song. Hi-ho, hi-ho, hi-ho. All right, get to work on that. Excellent. folks here, they actually are trying to do what they believe matters most. And every one of us does this. We're living in the midst of our fixer-upper lives and in the midst of this fixer-upper world, 
And it, maybe you're pursuing your happiness, and maybe you think that's what it's all about. If I can just extract a little bit of leisure and a little bit of enjoyment out of this life, or if you say, you know what, no, no, it's not about me. That's what we think we say. When we're the focused family guy, we say it's not about me. It's about, it's about me and my own. It's about my family. You know, I work like this for them. I sacrifice for them. And when you say them, what you mean is the people who live in your home whose last name is yours. And so that's your whole world at that point. And so you become obsessed with making sure that they get every advantage. But the reality is you're still living in this fixer-upper of a life and you're actually still looking out into a world of incredible need. But all of your time and energy and resources are actually being spent on you and yours. Now, you might say, yes, but look, now I'm the fixer-upper person, and, and, and I'm going to make my world prettier. But the thing is, you can do that. But, but what happens when you realize that you're actually just rearranging the chairs on the Titanic? Because you, you haven't actually recognized that all you're doing is trying to make something decrepit, something rotten, just a little bit prettier. And you see, we think because we're doing some good in the world, you could be a philanthropic kind of a person and say, look, I am doing some good, but are you doing the kind of good that actually matters? Or is this really just one more way for you to feel good about yourself? I work really hard. I try to make the world a better place. And all of a sudden, because you think you're doing that, a type of self-centeredness still enters into that. It feels like a virtue. But is it really a virtue? So let's give our volunteers a round of applause. Thank you, guys. You can just leave your stuff. Just drop it all there. Yep. You can hum those for the rest of the service as well. That would be great. That would be really. Thank you so much. No, we're going to take the hat. We're sorry. We're going to give that. We have two more services. Um, you can come back after and take it. Uh, see, and so what we, have, what we see here. And, you know, Nehemiah, he could have been distracted by all of these things just like anyone else could be. But he knew that he had to look inward. And I think this is such an important thing for us to recognize because the first renovation is a deep spiritual transformation. That's the real need here, a deep personal spiritual transformation. Look at verse 4 of our text, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. See, this is the key idea. I confess the sins. Verse 7, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. See, each of us has a deep need for spiritual transformation. But it isn't, see, it's not humanity in general that has a problem. It's, it's you in particular who is in great trouble and disgrace. It is me who is in great trouble and disgrace. What were God's laws through Moses? Think of it this way. This is what he's talking about, God's laws through Moses. All of the laws of Moses can be summed up in two. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing on those? That's the simplest way to get, it, to get it, whether or not we really are in great trouble and disgrace. How are you doing on the single two most, the two most important things that God says we have to do? Putting God at the center of your existence every moment of every day and treating your neighbor as you would treat yourself. Now, remember, your neighbor isn't simply the person who lives across the street. According to Jesus, your neighbor is all of humanity. Wherever there is a person in need, wherever there is an enemy who fights against you, wherever there is a, is a person where justice has not ruled in their life, whenever there is someone who is lonely, whenever someone is in financial need, have you loved them in the same way you love yourself? Have you cared for them with the same sort of vigor that you care for yourself and your own? Because that's what, that's what we're called to. It's only then that we begin to really recognize just how serious our need is. We begin to, to let our lives be, be uh, held up against this perfect standard of God's law. Now, fans of the show, all right, fans of the show, what is Chip's favorite part of the, of the project? Demo it's a demo day. Like demo, look, I got the demo day shirt on for it to prove it to you. No, it's demo day because of course demo day is one of the most important parts of what they have to do. Because without demo, you're never going to really get at the root. You're just going to be de redecorating the rot, the decay. We, were, we had a project, a house project that we did, a renovation of our house. And, uh, you know, we thought we had one size project. And uh, we ended up opening up a couple of walls, you know, to replace like a window here and there. And every window, every wall we opened up to replace, we found incredible rot it really started becoming a problem. Like every single wall we opened up, beams were rotted out. They had been infested with termites over the years. At one point, we realized we had to jack up our entire garage and replace all the wood that was on the bottom, the sill on the concrete. We opened up one ceiling, and there were these two-by-sixes or two-by-eights, really massive beams that you could crush with your hand. They were just waiting to collapse in. See, without Demo Day, you're never going to get at what, what's really inside. And you need to let God come in and do a demo day on your life. And when you do, you're gonna find the decay and the rot and the infestation that the Bible says is inevitable in our souls. You're gonna get in there and you're gonna find the selfishness and the greed and the gossip. See, God is already at work in us. He's already doing this. He's already, he's already calling us. He's already wooing us. And he's asking us to turn away from our self-centered ways, our consumeristic attitudes, our futile efforts at self-renovation. And he's saying, let me do the work. Let me do the work in you. See, you go throughout the rest of this book and you're going to find out that God is forgiving and gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. All of these amazing ideas are found throughout the book of Nehemiah. And of course, we know that because we live after Easter. We live in the years after the cross and the resurrection. We understand that the Easter hope is about forgiveness that God comes in there and he does a demo day on our soul and he replaces all of that decay and all of that rot with something beautiful. 
And all we have to do is yield to him and ask him to come in and start this renovation. And yes, he is going to demo first. He has to continue to tear down in order to build it up better and stronger. But his plans for you, they're incredibly beautiful. But you need demo day. The second renovation. The second renovation. The world needs a spiritual renovation. A real transformation. See, Christianity isn't simply about the conversion of an individual. It never has been. What good is the first renovation without the second, if it's not followed by the second? So often churches, religious people, they only get interested in the conversion moment. They just want to win another number, another person to add to their flock. That's what they want to do. As long as they get a conversion, they're feeling good. You guys hear the one about the, uh, the, 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 the priest and the rabbi and the pastor? All right, the priest, the rabbi, and the pastor, they decide to see who's best at what they do. And so they're going to go out, but they want to really raise a stake. So they're going to go out into the woods, and they're going to try to convert a bear. A true story. And, uh, and uh, so what they do is, so the, the priest goes out, and all of a sudden, you know, they're out there for a little while, and uh, he comes out of the woods, and the pastor's already, already waiting for him. And they say, how did it go? And the priest says, it went great. I went out there. I found a bear. I, I read him the catechism. I sprinkled him with holy water, and he'll be making his first holy communion next week. And the pastor's like, that's impressive. I actually got out there, and I found a bear, and I preached the word of God to them. And after I preached the word of God, they were so, they were so cut to the heart, that bear, that he immediately went to the river and was baptized and is now a member of, of my congregation. That's pretty amazing. And while they're telling this story, the rabbi comes rushing out of the woods, all beaten up, bloodied, and bruised. And they're like, what happened? And he goes, I guess I shouldn't have started with circumcision. <laughs> As we get renovated, God is going to stir up in our hearts a holy discontent. You see, it isn't simply about a conversion moment. Nehemiah left the immense comfort and leisure and pleasure and status and wealth of Susa. Later on, we're going to find out that he was cupbearer to the king. He had one of the most prestigious positions in all of the land of the Persians. He was one of these high-ranking officials, deeply trusted by the king, in a position to do great things. But in order for him to do what God was putting in his heart, he'd have to leave all of that behind. He'd have to leave it all behind. But you know, isn't that the same story? You see, Jesus, Nehemiah, he's just a picture of what Jesus actually already did for us. Jesus left the comfort of heaven, the palace of heaven. He's the greater Nehemiah. That's what Easter is about. Him leaving all of that comfort and all of that joy of heaven in order to come to this little hovel of a planet, this fixer-upper of a place, and meet with us, these fixer-uppers of people who would persecute him, who would kill him, who would deny him. But you see, something was stirred up in Nehemiah's heart and something even greater was stirred up in the heart of Jesus, a holy discontent to bring the restorative power of God to the fixer-uppers. And throughout Christian history, God has raised up men and women to transform the face of society. Elizabeth Fry worked on prison reform in England. William Wilberforce 
relentlessly tried to abolish the slave trade. These were Christian men and women with a holy discontent. During the Industrial Revolution, Lord Shaftesbury, he worked for improvements for workers in factories who were mostly women and children at the time. A holy discontent. Spurgeon worked to support orphans with food and shelter and security. All Christ followers who had a holy discontent and they knew they needed to transform society. Committed to doing it. It's a beautiful thing to see. I've been told that in all of Suffolk County, there are two families who will take medically challenged foster care babies. These are the babies that aren't going to make it. They have nowhere to go and they're waiting to die. There are two families who will take them. Both are Christ followers. This is what happens. A holy discontent gets stirred up in our hearts. For me, churches that are struggling, they're failing, they're hurt, they're not, they're not doing anything anymore, that's part of my holy discontent. People who think they don't need Jesus, that's part of my holy discontent. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what keeps me fueled. What's your holy discontent? In the book of James, we're told that if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Is there anything in your world that you see, something that grips your heart, some holy discontent that you know needs to be fixed in the world? And what are you doing about it? Do you even have that? Or are you so wrapped up in your own life and are you so blinded by the needs, uh, by, by your own life to the needs that are actually around you that you're not actually able to see and to feel what God is calling you into, something meaningful with purpose and value for the kingdom of God and for eternity? You're only going to find your true holy discontent if you first undergo demo day, the spiritual transformation and renovation that each of you needs. And then when you do, you will inevitably find your holy discontent, which means if you're saying to me, well, I feel like I've been spiritually transformed, but I have no holy discontent, then I've got to say your transformation is, is just beginning. It hasn't actually hit the kind of critical moments that, that we know are inevitable in the life of the follower of Christ. If we're really being transformed by God, then his heart becomes our heart. And the things that break his heart break our hearts. The things that, that Christ died for to fight against, the injustices in this world, they'll stir up our hearts as well. They have to. It is inevitable. So then what is next for you? We've got to ask that. Is Easter simply going to be another religious holiday where we try to feel just a little better about ourselves or are we really going to let Jesus start this a renovation on this fixer-upper of a soul that we have? Because when he does, then there's going to be something in this world, something that seizes your heart and stirs your soul and makes you, you, you want to get about fixing it. So this Easter, I'm encouraging each and every one of us, yield to God and let him make you the man or the woman who can bring his redemptive work into the world all around you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're asking that you would do this and so much more in our hearts. Father, meet each one of us here where we're at in the uniqueness of our journey with you. May we recognize our stiff-neckedness, our rebellion, 
May we, Father, instead yield. May we submit ourselves to your work and may we see, Father, the power of that played out. You've given us the, the promise of resurrected life. Power of the Spirit doing an amazing thing. Lord, we want that because we want to be a part of your kingdom plan. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. No other king could vanquish the war horse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. Jesus is that king, the king of glory, son of the living God. Not just another king, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for, the one to deliver us from captivity, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised to David during his reign, the one revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the one predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. He is our Jesus, and there is no other king like him. He is our God, our glory, our victorious Savior. There is no other king like him. There is no other king.